Welcome to the Perfume Room. My scent of the day today is Kellyan Jones' newest fragrance, Mezcal Flora. This scent is inspired by the founder and past Perfume Room guest Kelly Jones' olfactive experience walking through Mexico City's flower markets whilst sipping Mezcal. My big takeaway there is that my new life motto should be, what would Kelly do? Before I tell you what it smells like, I gotta say a special thank you to Kelly because Kelly and Jones is this month's sponsor of Perfume Room. Now, the best way to support the pod is to support the sponsor. And if you've noticed, there is a very high caliber of sponsors. I am, how should I say it? Quite discerning. If you are looking to get into a new brand this month, I so encourage you to try Kelly and Jones. It's a wonderful perfume brand and you will hear more about it later. Anyway... Back to Mezcal Flora specifically, Kelly generously gifted me this scent, separate from all of this, with no expectation of review, but it is indeed what I am wearing today, so let me tell you about it. Mezcal Flora feels incredibly nostalgic. When I sprayed it, it felt like a visit from an old friend. Now, it's not a copy or a dupe or a replacement of any particular perfume I know, and yet... It feels like it has little pieces, little nods to like 10 different perfumes I used to wear or smell in the early 2000s. And interestingly enough, it smells like both ones that skewed commercially feminine and masculine. Now this scent for me exists in a sort of like soprano alto range and it never veers lower. The opening, its sort of soprano parts, give an immediate burst of this pitchy pink pepper, followed by blousey, pointy florals like rose and cherry blossom, and they're all strewn about on an alto bass, a musky, intoxicating suede cloud. When I smell it, my olfactive third eye sees the musky pink pepper floral sea of Lancome Miracle, the distinctly perfumey perfume and luxury shoe store smell of Bottega Veneta, And then the dry down is like a mix of that sort of floral muskiness of like Vera Wang mixed with the sort of petally powderiness of the 2009 Valentino Eau de Parfum. And then this is the part where I'm just like, what? Because I swear I get this like undercurrent of like Aqua de Gio or like Dior Fahrenheit, like a sort of classic masculine, fresh, peppery floral. I can't place it perfectly because I'm not quite as well versed in my men's cologne references, but those were the first two that popped in my head. It's sexy, it's fun, it's approachable but alluring, and if you miss that sort of sexy, musky, floral style of the early aughts, I think this will totally scratch your itch. Now before we get to today's incredible guest, big important announcement. The theme for September Smell Club is Sheep Fragrances or Sheepras, however you say it, both are fine. Now whether you love Sheepras or you don't even know what they are or what they smell like, This Smell Club is for you. We will be smelling five very different style sheep scents, from ones created in a very classical style, all the way through this sort of highly debated, murky, nouveau sheeper category that has a lot of diehard sheeper lovers' panties in a bunch. And of course, we'll smell some modern but undebatably sheeper scents in between. If you're on my mailing list, you will get an email and early access to registration. Otherwise, be sure to follow the Perfume Room Instagram, that's at Perfume Room Pod on Instagram, for all related updates. Okay. Let's get to our guest today. We have a shorter episode because I ended up speaking to today's guest for so long, an hour and a half to be precise, that we decided, you know what, let's break this wonderful conversation into two parts. 
I am so excited about today's guest. I am such a personal fan. Today we are joined by the incredible Geza Shun. Geza is an illustrious perfumer. He's created scents for Clive Christian, Diesel, French Connection. He's done all of the Ormond Jane fragrances, but perhaps what you know him best for is what he's done for his own brand, Eccentric Molecules. That's right, Geza is the founder and perfumer of Eccentric Molecules, a revolutionary brand responsible for creating an entirely new category of perfume, the non-perfume perfume, or molecular forward fragrance. If you enjoy scents like Not A Perfume, Glossier U, Another 13, I Don't Know What, Commodity Paper, I could go on and on and on because it is its own category. You have Molecule 01 to thank. In part one, Geza and I chat about everything from the secret notes, those unlisted ones, that make their ways into every eccentric molecules formula, when and why Geza thinks commercial fragrance started to go downhill, Geza's isoe super epiphany, pheromones, the evolution of the skin scent, animalics, and so much more. It is my absolute pleasure to bring you part one of my conversation with Geza Shun. Geza, welcome to the Perfume Room. How are you doing today? Very well. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, it's a very good Thursday so far. I'm I'm so excited to talk to you. I'm such a fan of Ormond Jane, of Eccentric Molecules. I was wearing FCUK Her back in the day. I, I, I have been a fan of your creations for so long. So this is like, you know, meet the maker. So ah, what a pleasure. That's it's wonderful. So the first question that I always ask every guest is, what fragrance, if any, are you currently wearing right now? Um, if I'm working on a fragrance right now, it's probably the, um, the idea of doing a cologne for eccentric molecules. Hmm. Because, you know, a cologne is just such a classic and wonderful thing to have um, to be wearing. So it's that. I mean, not to be launched till like another one and a half years for our 20 years anniversary. That's the plan. Um, but yeah, that's that's probably what I'm working closest on right now. Okay, very exciting. And when you say cologne, are you referring to like a lighter concentration of perfume or because I know cologne is used so differently depending on who you speak to? Yeah. Um, I mean, it'll be ultra fresh and I'll try sort of a kind of a special freshness for this one. But no, the thing is, um, you know, no one's launching a fragrance with 5% of doses these days. And yes, a classic cologne in the past would have maybe launched with just like 5 to 10% of concentration. Mm -hmm. I'm sure we will have at least 15% dosage, I presume, unless we run into trouble with IFRA, but that has to be played um, when we get there. But for the time being, I would be smelling on a 15% dosage for some lasting experience, obviously. Mm, lovely. Okay, I look forward to that. Okay, this is very jumping ahead, but I heard a rumor a few months ago that there's some sort of IFRA ban that's going to take effect with ISOE Super. Can you confirm or deny this? And if it's true, what would happen with eccentric molecules? I can um, deny it quite quite clearly. Um, Great. I've just been in touch with a friend of mine who I did the education with in Holtzman back then and like sort of 30 years ago. And he works in the US and he also commented like 
that that's pretty much BS. And um, I can also give you a good example for why I also think that this is the case. Because just recently, um, ICE Super was looked at more specifically from, I guess, I don't know, either IFRA or whatever organization who, you know, likes to make perfumers life hell these days. Um, (laughs) And I saw IFF looked at it because, you know, they invented ICE Super and they had a very long, complicated test to basically at the end, bottom line, proving that IC Super has become biodegradable over the years. So, yes, it's still a chemical and stuff, but if it's become biodegradable, I think that would be that would be crazy if then authorities would be start worrying about these ones as well. Okay, that honestly that's great news because you know That's I great that. news, absolutely. Great <laughs> news. And I I googled it and I couldn't find anything that supported it. It was like something that someone messaged me and I was like, well, I'm going to ask the Mr. Isoe Super himself, because if anyone would know or be impacted, it would be you. Okay, great. So the next question that I always ask every guest is, do you have any sort of like signature scent or scent profile that you tend to gravitate towards? Yeah, I think um, what I feel most comfortable with for perfumes or for fragrances would be, I mean, yeah, fresh and spicy is always very much high up on the ladder for me, um, as well as Balsamic is a good one, animalic and woody. So I do not tend to feel too comfortable with big florals or very sweet fragrances or very aquatic as Mm -hmm. in cologne and all these ingredients. That's not really up my street. I find it rather um, sort of offending, almost offensive is the word rather. Um, So yeah, that's that's my direction, what what I would go into. I mean, I feel like all of your fragrances definitely reflect what you were just speaking about. And I have never smelled cologne in any of your any of your creations. It so. doesn't exist in any of them. Yeah, <laughs> that's and right. I, it doesn't. But you know what I do think is an unsung hero in a lot of your creations? Because we're obviously going to talk a lot about Isoe Super. And I know that you have a whole fragrance dedicated to this of Molecule plus Iris. But I feel like Iris is in a lot of your formulas. Is that correct? Absolutely. I mean, iris is one of the most fantastic and mesmerizing ingredients there is because it has just next to its sheer olfactory quality, it has a like a physical effect in a fragrance. And it gives radiance as well as a very unique powdery note, which goes very well with the sort of the chords and the fields I've played and feel comfortable with. So yeah, iris is in, if I, if I, if it makes sense to use it, I will use an iris note for sure. Every eccentric we've done so far from one to five has an iris note in different ways and shapes and forms. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course I, you know, I, the, 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 one of the advantages of being an independent perfumer obviously is to, um, to be able to, you know, I, I dictate what the fragrance will be like. And if I say that, well, we unfortunately will have to use some really expensive ingredients for this one, I will, and it will be accepted. So we don't have any financial constraints or creative constraints when we go for, you know, the next fragrance we'll be working on. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the beauties of something like Molecula One Plus Iris, for example, which, by the way, I just on a personal note, I am an iris fiend, iris lover. It is my favorite note, iris and oris. And when I smelled molecule plus iris, I was just 
it's, you know what it is? It's like, it's, it shows so much opulence and restraint at the same time. It's so much iris and it's so sheer, but it's also has such a strong sillage and it's simultaneously comforting and elegant. But even though it has that nod to makeup, it doesn't go sweet and it just feels it, it's a masterpiece. So thank you. Listen, thank you I, I, I absolutely love what you've just said. Um, it's a wonderful description of um, exactly how I needed to place the iris note in a fragrance um, because it obviously shouldn't, you know, like evoke ideas to fragrances from the past. So it had to be something new. And I was envisioning this kind of modern, light, easy to wear, yes, strong iris note, but you know, what comes next to that? And this was the, the most important question. Not too much can come next to an iris note if you really like iris because anything else you put next to it will rather cover the subtlety and the softness and the sort of the silent aspect of an iris mm -hmm. and then the iris is gone or it's been covered and that's that was impossible for me when i did that so this is how the whole m plus range came about it started with m plus iris and i I, there's a story there, right? Didn't you originally craft this for your partner and it became yes. a... So, yeah, can you tell everyone the story of sure. Molecule Plus Iris? Um, it came about when... So I noticed whenever I showed um, Sophie, my partner, fragrances I was working on, um, at some point it dawned on me that she would always pick stuff which had an iris note. And not every fragrance I'm working on has an iris note. So, but it became clear at some point. So I said, you really like iris. She said, I didn't know what iris smells like. And I couldn't blame her for that because no one really knows. So I showed her some iris ingredients and she absolutely loved it and said, oh, this is so good and lovely and subtle. And so can you please make me an iris fragrance? So I thought, sure. And then what we've just said, um, you can't put much next to an iris note in a fragrance if you really want the iris note to live and to be absolutely detectable and obvious. So that's when the idea of this enormous package of ICE Super came about as the perfect, transparent, wonderfully smelling carrier there is next to the iris note. So I kept working on this little accord. The fragrance is very short in terms of like, you know, it has maybe, I don't know, 10, 11 ingredients. Mm -hmm. So it's very simple still. Yet she started wearing it. <clears throat> Lots of people commented on it. Um, people stopped her on the street and said, this smells wonderful. So I then sent it off to my boys in London and they had similar experiences. So we thought, hey, you know, we really got something here. Mm -hmm. which we then, after short discussions, felt very comfortable to, to launch because this M plus Iris, I think to me, is what I would understand a modern woman of these days to wear, to make a statement without being too much in your face. I mean, I wear it, so I, I will take that as a compliment. And how does she feel about this thing that was created intimately for her by her by her lover now being this mass market fragrance. <laughs> I think she can live quite well with that. Yeah, I guess she would rather have kept it to herself. But on the other hand, you know, she will she'll keep boasting about the fact that she originally initiated the M plus series, which is true. And but then, you know, these are the lovely things sort of which get written in life. And 
she's been part of it, yeah. Do you have any fragrance hot takes or controversial opinions that maybe other people in the industry might not necessarily agree with you on? Oh, holy, holy. <laughs> That's a big one. I mean, I, you know, I guess it, it, this has been part of my decision to leave the industry because back then in the late 90s, I thought perfumery was already being a bit stuck somehow and that really hasn't dissolved until today, until the moment when the mass fragrance industry started to look into what, you know, the niche fragrances had been doing. So they've been kind of following ever since. I mean, if I go back, I mean, one of the first um, big sort of impact a niche brand has had probably would be, or let's, let's go the other way around. I mean, if you look at Molecular One and mm-hmm. sort of that trend which it has created back then with, you know, we were able to talk about chemicals and stuff. And then you had um, Sontal 33, again from Le Labo, which had an enormous impact. And then you had Baccarat Rouge. I don't know if the US is sort of familiar with that, but... Unfortunately, too much so. <laughs> oh, so there you go. So all the dupes of and stuff. But I, mm-hmm. I mean, this has been... You know, just these show how fragrances or ideas for fragrances obviously come rather out of the the labs of independent perfumers mm-hmm. and independent houses, luckily, than the big ones. I mean, as much as we were always looking forward to seeing the new launches in the 70s, 80s and 90s to see, you know, when a brand came out with a new fragrance, it was always like a big thing and it always had you know, qualities, like some really, it had value and it had substance and it had something new and interesting in it. And that sort of like died in the 90s somehow. So I think for that reason, coming back to the question, um, this has been a big part why I left and why I felt perfumery could develop into other areas than what we, until the 90s, as I said, saw in the mass sector. Um, so I'm, I'm really happy to not be working in the industry any longer just because, yeah, probably ever since um, Essentic Molecules was founded, I have found also sort of a presence with other areas and other people who I probably would not have accessed if I would have stayed in the industry. So mm-hmm. it's amazing to see what you can do when you're there outside on your own and, you know, you can see the people and meet them directly and talk one-to-one. So this creates a whole lot of other vibe and it's different. Um, I think there is there are sort of trends which I don't really, I'm not really interested in, like, one of those trends for sure was um, this aquatic one, which appeared in the 90s. And mm-hmm. don't get me wrong, I mean, there are some wonderful translations of an aquatic note in a fragrance, yet I just, I, I can't get my head around the idea that somebody would be wanting to smell aquatic and then coming from a very aggressive synthetic ingredient, which also gets used in, in toilet flush products and sort of floor cleaners. Mm-hmm. So... I just don't find it very attractive. I wish people would smell differently. And I think the, the the next one, which really for me killed the fine fragrance in the mass industry was for sure um, One Million by Paco Rabanne. That was a real killer. I thought that's the kitschization of fragrance per se. Um, there was so much kitsch in a fragrance, I couldn't believe it. And it was all like, 
it was an enormous soup made of a thousand topics and they're all coming together forming this incredibly strong powerful but disgusting fragrance i thought it's really not very sophisticated so but then with this sort of it started a trend of i think very powerful fragrances mm -hmm. which i find again totally disgusting and i so i'm just giving trying to give you a picture of what i what i don't like or where my yeah. my likes are I, i prefer more subtle fragrances i like them to be personal i like them to be suited to an individual individual person rather than you know somebody comes into the door and knocks you out because of their right. fragrance and then it's a terrible one so that doesn't help <laughs> well i think what you're saying is really um important because so many people conflate avant-garde or daring with just like these maximalist smells and i think in so many ways what you're doing is completely innovative and avant-garde in a minimalist way and i'm i'm curious like you mentioned the 90s a lot is there something that you can pinpoint that maybe happened in the industry or maybe like in culture that you think sort of led to this like lack of innovation in commercial fragrance in that time period yeah i think the times were changing at some point where um i think a lot of fragrances we've seen from probably the 60s over the 70s to the 90s they were they had a real concept so there were there was still room for new fragrances and brands who had the power to release those fragrances took you know they were audacious and mm -hmm. they would believe in a fragrance concept and they would launch it rather than just saying oh you know now we're davidoff or um Ralph Lauren or Paco Rabanne, you know, we need to make money with this. So we need to launch a fragrance, which isn't too much away from what we've seen in the past. And therefore that automatically, automatically narrows down your, the whole field where you're playing in, because, you know, I mean, you've mentioned it, look at all the dupes of uh, Baccarat Rouge, for example. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So it's obvious what happens. They want to make money and not stand out with their exquisite, creativity fitting to the DNA of a brand or a designer and make it something really interesting. So that over the, the years just died and therefore um, it's changed. And therefore it's good we have the niche brands, even though some niche brands start duplicating themselves. But, you know, that's again down to money and turnover and dollars. <laughs> right. Well, you were mentioning that niche brands sort of like pave these trends and obviously Molecula One is a huge one and you mentioned Santal and Baccarat. Was there a skin scent category before Molecula One? Like in some ways, did you create this? There's an entire new market of skin scents. Did this exist prior? I mean, no, I wouldn't say that I created sort of a, a, a skin trend. I think... Um, I mean, what is a skin scent? So I think in the past I would have said, yeah. you know, something which is really close to the body, very musky, very powdery, you know, slightly maybe even animalic, so very comforting, close, related to body odors. Sort of I would have wrapped all of these together for mm -hmm. the description of a skin scent. Yet I think um, because, I mean, going back to Molecular One, When you wear this, um, it, first of all, it smells different on each person, but then 
every fragrance smells different each person. But then mm-hmm. with Icy Super, because it's so singular and linear and the scent is so simple and one-dimensional mm-hmm. within its beauty and its olfactoric presence, I think that has led to um, certainly making singular and not complex fragrance structures popular so that even something simple, let's say like, you know, in the 70s, my parents used to wear patchouli oil because that was one of the scents of the hippie culture. And mm-hmm. that was just one thing. That was. Are you, are you the child of hippies just as a, uh, for the record? A little bit, maybe. Yeah. I mean, my parents were very left-wing and um, it was still obviously the, the after-war generation. Mm-hmm. My, my father was born in 44, my mom in 48, right? So war was just over, if you like. Um, but um, I think what certainly what Eccentric Molecules did was, um, you know, now nobody sort of stops himself of talking about chemicals. Mm-hmm. So we've, yes, we've made a singular note existing of a singular aroma chemical popular. Um, and it just shows that people actually don't mind as long as it smells great, as long as they will get compliments and as long as they, you know, meet people they will have kids with in the future. I'm only saying that because I receive mails from people who thank me for, you know, they say like, oh, through Molecular One, I've met my partner. Now we have two kids together which is very sweet and very simplistic still. So um, I think instead of creating more complex, crazy fragrances, which we've seen in the past, it was a good step to go back to basics and look at singular ingredients. And for Mm -hmm. that, I probably would take credit, but um, that was just, it just had to be done eventually. Ring, ring. Hello, it's me, Emma, and I've got the perfect activity for your next date night, friend hang, forced fun work outing, whatever you're doing, whomever you're doing it with, here's what you're gonna wanna do. A perfume wine pairing. How good does that sound? Grab some different wines, the corresponding perfumes, and smell and taste away. Wait, corresponding perfumes? What? How? I'll tell you how, with this month's wonderful sponsor of Perfume Room, Kelly & Jones, which is an entire fragrance brand specifically meant to be paired and experienced with your favorite wines and spirits, because they're all inspired by the tasting notes and terroir of said wines and spirits. Smelling these notes as you taste them in wine not only enhances the tasting experience, it helps uncomplicate it. That delicious number two pencil note of a great California cab that your Aunt Pam, who went to Napa once 10 years ago, won't stop talking about, you can finally smell it and understand it. There's the Wine Pairing Collection, which features wine's greatest hits like Chardonnay, Riesling, and Cabernet. Then there's the Blends Collection, Five different layering oils inspired all by the primary aromas of the wine wheel. We're talking citrus, we're talking earth, we're talking oat, we're talking fruit, we're talking floral. And of course, the Mezcal collection, inspired by the different terroir in Oaxacan agave fields. Which, might I just add that their newest release, Mezcal Flora, is a pink pepper rose stunner. 
What I recommend is ordering sample flights of all of these collections, rallying the crew, and having a night. And all of these scents come in a fun little square rollerball size, specifically so that you can sneak them in your purse or pocket should you choose to do this experience in an actual tasting room instead. Kelly and Jones is generously giving Perfume Room listeners an exclusive limited-time discount code. Now, through October 31st, use the code PERFUMEROOM at checkout on any order placed on kellyandjones.com to get 15% off your purchase. That's PERFUMEROOM at checkout on kellyandjones.com for 15% off any order. I mean, this response has so much to unpack because the first part of the this response that you're talking about was what makes a skin scent. And I, I totally agree with you that it's so subjective because it depends how, like, is it sort of like an animalic musk? Is it something that just sits close to the skin, something that's sheer with the skin? Or is it this molecule sort of thing? But I do think, I mean, I definitely think you set the trend for this like non-perfume perfume, but I also think that you shifted the trend of what a skin scent is because largely today, if you look at editorial that's written, if you look at social media, if you look at people doing these roundup videos of best skin scents, they're not talking about these sort of like animalics. They're talking about these these molecular scents and they're, you know, it's like Molecula One, not a perfume, Glossier U. These are the scents that I see come up time and time again as skin scents. So I think if nothing else, you shifted how we view that category. I, you know what, now that just, now we, uh, while we were talking, it just doomed on me that um, it's, you know what, I think to many of these people, it also becomes attractive because you're not smelling fruit, flowers, sweet, this, mm-hmm. that, the other, all of these ingredients which usually make up a fragrance, they're not there. And I think right. that's attractive. So there is something which is olfactorically nice. It's very radiant. You can smell it via several meters in the room. It's singular. And also one thing, obviously, which I've forgotten um, is something we only know, have known for a few years, which is um, I've, I, I was in touch with um, a professor here in Germany, Professor Dr. Hans Hutt. He used to run one of the... Um, chairs at the Ruhr Bochum University in West part of Germany. And he had dozens of people who helped him look into how do we actually physically smell, right? So he did some groundbreaking research and wrote books about it and stuff. So we met like 15 years ago and have been in touch ever since. And at some stage he said to me, hey, uh, you know, when I met him, um, he said what they're doing right now is to inject the most possible tiniest amount of aroma chemicals into singular human cells, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole idea is already so far out. And I said, so what have you been injecting? And what does the cell think when you, you know, when some linalool or whatever comes around and says hi? And he said, so far, not so much happened. And I said, show me your list. And it was all these standard ingredients which you find in every essential oil and, you know, like the basic ingredients of perfumery. And I said, why don't you check out something really cool? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, there's some ingredients which might have other potential than those basic ones. And he said, well, can you give me some? So I gave him like five, six ingredients among obviously one of them, Icy Super. And he made these tests. And then months later, after I hadn't heard from him, I called him and I said, what happened when, you know, the cell was injected with Icy Super? And he said, the cell started to dance. 
Wow. And you know what? I com completely and fully believe that just because they then took the tests further and checked out how our whole pheromone system sort of would um, react to, to ICE Super. And they found out that ICE Super, indeed, unlike all other chemicals they've ever tested, it stimulates one of our five remaining pheromone receptors. So, right? So we, we have pheromone receptors and we used to have way more than we're currently using because a mouse still has to have 200 pheromone receptors to exchange info and, you know, whatever there's out there because they don't speak, they don't have mobile phones and they can't read. So they can't really exchange information so they've only identified five, which we are still like in use of. And one of these five is stimulated by IC Super, which is crazy. Mm -hmm. But that also to me was a final sort of, that was the definition of why, or the explanation why so many people go mad on the street if somebody wears IC Super and they stop them on the street and say, this smells great. You know, mm. again, just such a singular smell. It's interesting because I, I did have um, a pheromone scientist on the on the podcast before, and he was talking about how there have never been any human pheromones discovered, but was also sort of pivoting the conversation to this idea of, are there certain smells that are like attractants? Or like, I guess, how where do you see the conversation of like human pheromones or just in general fragrances being marketed as as pheromones and where does molecule stand in that conversation? Well, the traditional pheromones they used to add to fragrances, which I think, I believe they started selling already 60s or 70s when they, you know, boasted about pheromones and stuff. They were pheromones from pigs. And I, I remember sort of like, must have been the early 80, uh, late 80s, early 90s, I ordered via, yeah, I was at Harmon and Reimer back then already. I ordered a sample of one of these fragrances and I wanted to smell it because I never had smelled one previously. And you could smell that whatever they added there was from pigs. It was absolutely disgusting. Mm. So I, I, I don't really know, but I think the idea that with an addition of pigs pheromones, a human being would attract anything but a pig is probably quite ridiculous. So mm -hmm. <laughs> those, they just, these things just didn't work. Mm -hmm. I bet that was just a story. But again, all I can say is that, and I've written it down, this was exactly the wording. He said, IC Super was basically proven to stimulate one of these five remaining pheromone receptors a human being is still, we're still using. So the, what, the comment of your colleague from the US saying, they've actually never identified any pheromone receptors is in a, a crass contrast to what I was fed right. with by Professor Dr. Hans Hutt, who, I don't know, has been doing the research for like, I don't know, probably 15 years. That was not me saying that he's wrong. I, it's more just that I'm curious because I feel like the pheromone conversation is something that's very per pervasive right now. And um, there are different scientists who some say, like have like you said have found pheromone receptors and some are like no this is only in pigs and then and then even when you were talking about just this idea of like unless you're trying to attract a pig like you're not going to wear that pheromone but I think that also goes back to a, another conversation a slightly adjacent to this of like why are humans attracted to 
animalic smells. Like, what is it about like indoles and fragrance too that like, why do we crave a slight poopy smell? Let's say the, the these few natural animalic ingredients we had in perfumery and well, we still have them, but some of them we can't use. Um, for example, musk from the musk deer has been uh, been forbidden since the early 90s, I believe. So when I entered perfumery, there was still like a musk tincture, but then it just went very quickly. So that's that's out. That's, of course, the best animalic smell there is. There's no doubt. What does it smell like? Can you, can you or is yeah, there anything I mean, comparable? So musk tincture, it, I, I remember it was a 3% um, tincture in alcohol, but it was already so powerful that... You didn't even smell the alcohol, even though it was only 3%. It's the best smell as in the warmest, the most musky and comforting, cozy, with a wonderful and but sort of feral, urinous, leathery um, complexity, which is just uh, takes your shoes off when you smell that. It's so sexy and irreplaceable i mean when they when they were struck off the list obviously they all came up with versions and replacers for the original stuff can't it's it doesn't work it's something different it's completely different and then so musk was gone then castorium from the beaver from our friends in canada that's still around yet some companies don't want to work with it because it's an animal product very beautiful very leathery it smells of like to me always like when you have on a on a Sunday market, somebody's selling lots of olives in big wooden oh. beakers. Okay. And there's sort of like this oily, meaty, herbal smell coming along. That's a little similar for me. Um, then you have ambergris from the, the sperm whale, which is still around. You can buy um, squalosa tincture. So like a tincture of the original ambergris they've made um, into a tincture, but it's not very powerful. So, you know, for these days, you're using the singular ingredients from ambergris, which is mainly ambroxan, ambrinol, uh, boronal, and dihydroenone gamma. So these four chemicals basically made up 80% of the smell. And they are in linear form, way more powerful, way more expensive, uh, way more cheap than the original so that's ambergris and then you're left with civet from the civet cat which is quite a pungent smell between sort of like really rotten cheese and a huge blob of shit and it's just somewhere <laughs> in between and it sounds horrendous but if you use it in a fragrance and then over time when it matures with the rest of the fragrance it adds a, a warmth and something interesting to it so all of these ingredients, you know, if you were to show them people on the street, they would all jump back one meter, you know, and think like, mm -hmm. what the hell is that? But if you know how to use them, it's it gets a creaminess, a sophistication, a warmth you can't obtain from other ingredients. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, too, that you brought up Ambroxan because Ambroxan, I think, has become so popular because of Molecule 2. I mean, you named those other synthetic ambergris uh, notes 
And I don't think they have the same awareness that Ambroxan does. And I think that that's truly because of Molecule 2. I want to go back to ISOE Super for a second because I feel like that is so like the ethos of eccentric molecules. What, do you have an aha moment of like when you first discovered ISOE Super and when you realize like this is, this is the thing? Absolutely. Um, I remember that very well. When I joined Harman and Reimer, this fragrance house who employ perfumer and flavors, flavorists, um, must have been in August 1990. So like mm-hmm. three, 33 years back, um, I had a little lab. So they gave me a room next to the chief perfumer where I could sort of start being autodidactic and play around and stuff. And eventually I came across IC Super. It was a singular ingredient from, from IFF, which they, they discovered it in 73, I think. And when I smelled that, it just was so opening up my understanding for why I also liked certain other fragrances previously. And they all had one common thing in them, which was they all had a big chunk of IC Super as an ingredient. And the mm-hmm. same then happened weeks later when I took Icy Super and gave it to a friend of mine to wear on his neck, one drop left, one drop right. I said, can you just wear this? So we went into this bar in our hometown and it took 10 minutes maybe that this woman who went to the loo came back and so bypassed us, standing us in this bar. She bypassed us twice and second time she stopped and said, who smells so nice here? And I then started talking to her and came out, she loves... Uh, Tresor from Lancôme and Fahrenheit from Dior. Two completely different fragrances, couldn't be more different than this, but they both have one common thing. They both have, Fahrenheit has 25% of Icy Super and Tresor has 20. So it became clear that this certainly didn't harm her likes of these fragrances. So it then kind of was clear that, hang on, you know, this, this woman just stopped here after this friend of mine just had this on his neck for like 10 minutes, we walk in there and she dares to ask him what he was smelling of. That was outrageous. And right. so that's that's how it all started and became very obvious that there's something very specific and very cool in this ingredient. And when you had this idea to isolate this fragrance and make it its own molecule fragrance, how was that received by the industry? Did people think that that was like a, a crazy thing to do or or like cheating the system or something like that? You've already said exactly what happened. It, it's exactly, it was either or. Mm-hmm. Um, people hated me for it. They said like, oh, you're betraying the perfumery or like this is really cheap and I could have done that, sort of like stupid comments like that. And the other mm-hmm. one was like, fucking fantastic. Well done, you know, because mm-hmm. it's it it, it it was only possible for it to become a success if somebody dared to wear something. Most people, when they spray it on a blotter, can barely smell themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I I can't smell anything. And this is how it started. I mean, this is even crazier, but shows the, the power of that. When we had our first set of fragrances, so we had Molecular One, we had Eccentric One, we went to Harvey Nichols in London. We had a contact to the head buyer of Harvey Nichols cosmetic and fragrances. So we went in and said, hi, and said, look, we have this, what do you think? <laughs> and she sprayed it on herself. She sprayed it on her skin and said, I can't smell it. And then we gave her eccentrical one because it's a bit more obvious and has other ingredients. She said, oh yeah, that's quite nice. But, and then she was busy and was hectic and had to go. She left 
So Daniela Rinaldi was her name. She left and she went to take a cab. And very soon afterwards, the cab driver says to her, oh, darling, you smell nice. What is that? And then she said, oh, my God, can you can you smell this? I, 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 I can't smell it. What is it? Do you like it sort of thing? And then mm -hmm. she left the cab, went into the flower shop. The lady in the flower shop says, oh, my God, you have to tell me what, what is this fragrance you're wearing? Wow. So she got completely confused and couldn't believe that obviously it has this effect on other people. And mm -hmm. I think even the third person on her way home commented on her beautiful smell. So she came back next day to Harvard Nichols and bought everything we had. And it's been ever since uh, one of their most successful products ever. That concludes part one of this incredible conversation with Geza Shun. Next week, you can look forward to more personal stories like the fragrances that got Geza into perfume and a serendipitous meeting that led to his first big break, how and when he uses certain synthetics, and so much more. See you next week. This podcast was edited by Joe Leonardo. Music is by Max Vernon, and illustrations are by Israel Rodriguez.